This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Catherine Standifer is the author of a stunning debut memoir called Lightning Flowers, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life. In her early 20s, Catherine was diagnosed with long Q2 syndrome, a rare disorder of the heart. She writes, in complete poetry, about the medical trauma she's experienced in the past decade. We talk about her relationship with the defibrillator implanted in her heart and its repercussions in her life her battles for insurance and our broken system, and our collective refusal to look at the end, whether it's of our own lives or the products we bring into them. In her book, Catherine voyages to many corners of the globe to understand how the device inside her was mined from the earth. She is a beautiful thinker and talker who is devoted to understanding the sacred. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I also wanted to take a moment to let you know that today's episode will be my last one with the Goop podcast. This has been a grand adventure, truly one of the great pleasures of my life so far. Thank you so much for your time, your attention, and your communion. It has been a joy to connect with you here and on social media as we journey to get all of our collective questions answered. Thank you for joining me on this ride. You'll be hearing more from GP and other members of the Goop team in episodes to come. So stay tuned. Okay, let's get to my chat with Catherine Standifer. So congrats on your book. I wish for you it had emerged, although I guess it's appropriate since it is about the healthcare industry to some extent that it has emerged during COVID. Appropriate. Strangely appropriate. And obviously, you know, I think 
I'm sure you'll agree as a fellow young person, but you um, are relatively young person. I don't know when that you no longer get. I guess I'm middle age, but (laughs) (laughs) but you health insurance is one of those things that we and our health are things that we take for granted until we need insurance, in which case it's a total disaster. And many of us don't have good insurance or any insurance at all. So let's go back to the beginning and and your diagnosis. Can you sort of quickly sort of take people through how you found yourself uninsured and with a significant cardiac diagnosis? So my book opens when I pass out in a parking lot at age 24 years old. And at that time, I was living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and trying to build a writing career and working in outdoor education to pay the bills. So working seasonal jobs as a ski instructor and hiking guide and climbing teacher. And those are really fun jobs, but they're not necessarily (laughs) the most lucrative jobs. And so they did not come with insurance. And I paid for insurance out of pocket for the first year. But you know, pre-2009, there weren't really many restrictions on what an insurance policy could be or not be. And so they really were just the most basic, really not very Mm -hmm. useful insurance policies. And then the second year, it was like, this is not worth spending several hundred dollars a month on. I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm not going to the doctor. The only reason I thought about needing it was in case I broke my leg skiing or something. Right. And so I didn't pay for it that next winter. And of course, that is when I woke up in a parking lot with gravel in my forehead. Can you sort of take take us through your diagnosis and how common that is or uncommon, I guess, but still more common than people probably think? So it's relatively rare. It's called uh, long QT syndrome. And when I woke up in the parking lot that day, I knew that that's probably what I had because my younger sister Uh, about a year and a half previously, had started going into cardiac arrest in her dorm room. She was a freshman at the time at University of Colorado Boulder, and it took a hot minute to figure out why she was passing out. You know, at first we were like, oh, you're in college. Were you drunk? (laughs) Are you having seizures? (laughs) What's happening? And finally, she was lucky to have a nurse who recognized that she was experiencing this relatively rare arrhythmia in which the heart quivers instead of beating. It's a problem in the way the heart's electrical system works. And so Christine, my younger sister, had already had an implanted cardiac defibrillator for about a year and a half at the time that I passed out in a parking lot. And there had been some pressure on me in the family to walk into the hospital and ask for an EKG to make sure that I did not have this arrhythmia that we knew was genetic. But you know, I was 24 years old and very healthy and not really thinking about how to fit a visit to the hospital into my day off, which is, you know, ironic given everything that happened. And so I did not, I did not ever look into it. And when I woke up in that parking lot, it was all but certain that that's why I had passed out. Right. And I'm sure I don't want to, but I think I can safely say this having read your book. I think it seems like there was also an aversion to even knowing or like stepping onto that path because (laughs) you've essentially become beholden to the, and in ways that are an injustice in many ways, but you become beholden to the medical care industry. And that's not necessarily something that you want to do. I mean, it's not uncommon for people to avoid going to see the doctor when they're, when they're, 
on some level deeply aware of the diagnosis. Yeah. So I think that's a very human, I think it's all so human, you know, and, you know, as you're talking, it really, I'm thinking about the COVID situation we're in and how one of the most profound things about watching this unfold from where I sit is just being able to see the intense level of inability to process the idea that death could be here all the time. Mm-hmm. I think our culture is really death averse. And so there are a lot of young people, especially, but also not young people who don't want to believe this could affect them. Or if if they do get it, they think it will automatically be okay. And I think I was in that category before having this experience because it's kind of a human thing to to want to keep death out of mind. It's very hard to live once you're thinking about death. Yeah. No, certainly. And then, and I think, I think I'm just a little bit older than you, but when you're in your 20s, you feel invincible. It's inconceivable. Yes, like you could break your leg or get into a car accident, maybe. But I think that this idea of of being in a protracted relationship with the healthcare industry feels Mm -hmm. impossible. And Mm -hmm. that that's, it's just not a calculus that I think any of us can make or should be expected to make, certainly. I mean, I think it's, this is why we need some, we need universal health care. This, this can't be a calculus that people are deciding between, you know, rent, food, or the possibility of intensive treatment. It just doesn't Absolutely. make any sense. The yeah. idea that you should only have to begin thinking about how to get care once you need care is rather ridiculous. <laughs> right. And then this idea, obviously, which is a, a specter looming for almost for, for pretty much any almost everyone, because I think that also we, as Amer- Americans, we don't really understand this idea of pre-existing conditions and what qualifies. Mm-hmm. But almost all of us can theoretically be denied coverage, I mean, by pre-existing c- condition and certainly not necessarily pre-existing conditions that are as serious and costly as yours. But especially now in a COVID era, right? Because anyone who's had COVID might experience these long-term effects that we don't understand yet. Exactly. So now we're going to have millions of Americans who will qualify as having some sort of an event. And that's just not, it's not not a tenable (laughs) way for us to live individually or collectively. And then I think too, your story is fascinating on many levels and we'll I think can follow all the trails in, in which it's it's a really interesting, not to make you into a conversation, but it is a really interesting conversation. But you also, at various points in your journey, experience really subpar care and yeah. or potentially inappropriate interventions, and you're still paying for those. The system's still paying for those, right? Mm-hmm. And so this choose-your-own-adventure and leaving people to sort of muddle through is also very costly. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. One of the big contradictions of my story is that I receive a lot of care without necessarily feeling like I'm being cared for much of the Mm. time. And I hadn't really put two and two together in the way you just framed it, Elise, that yes, I'm still paying for those experiences. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's sort of stunning at the end when you finally end up sort of with the doctor who should have been overseeing your care from the get-go, but who is, of course, at Mayo and inaccessible without really great mm-hmm. health insurance, but that essentially, what did he say effectively? Like every single decision that was made in your case was wrong? 
the only thing that has been done wrong so far is everything that's been done so far. Ugh. Which was really a breathless thing to hear. I mean, at that point in the story, for those who haven't read the book, I really agonized over the idea of whether or not I should get an implanted cardiac defibrillator. It was recommended by this one cardiologist, and I could tell something in my body really didn't want it. Something in my body just had this horrible feeling. But I also didn't know how to live worrying that my heart might stop pumping blood and start just quivering, which causes cardiac arrest and can cause sudden cardiac death. And so, you know, I did get the ICD. And then over the course of the book, I have all sorts of troubles with both the ICD and other health issues related to it. And so by the time I arrive in that room, I have just been through so much. And this idea that by starting with a different healthcare provider, I could have not incurred the level of medical trauma and life upheaval. It was really stunning. I mean, I really want everyone in this country to have care. And my story really opens the problem that access to care is really only the first step. There are all these other components to what care you get and with whom that are so important. Right. And many of us, you know, are not equipped. I mean, the my dad's a doctor and I grew up in sort of watching procedures at the hospital and in very firmly ensconced in the healthcare system because that's where I'd go every day after school and file charts and my mom worked in his I mean, I, like all we did was talking about talk about medical interventions and claim codes and like it just <laughs> <Good> dinner conversation <laughs> it was fascinating it's still hilarious to me that you know the hospital was across the street from my dad's office and he was you know an intensivist pulmonologist so I'd hang out in the emergency room I was just around all the time like sitting at the nurses stations waiting to go home and my dad would let me watch I mean, not even my dad, The pa some patients would let me watch procedures, like watch him do endoscopies wow. and stuff, which is wow. so strange. I'm sh I watched colonoscopies with the gastroenterologist in my dad's practice. I still ponder that because I'm like, what? Seven-year-old is like, yeah, and 12-year-old girls. <laughs> this is cool. Well, I get excavated. However, that said, even having the advocacy of my parents and who are expert in the healthcare industry, it's still really difficult. And you can yeah. see how easy it is. You know, it's a, an act of faith to put your health in the hands of often very well-trained and, and well-intentioned doctors, but things go really wrong. And then mm -hmm. as you also encounter, not only do things go wrong, but then there's an inability to even acknowledge that or look at that or apologize or look you in the eyes yeah. after you know, as in one moment of the book. And I promise these are not, we're not giving anything away because the book itself is, such, is so beautifully written. It's poetry. It's such a treat. So it's not, these are not cliffhanger. This is not a thriller, <laughs> a medical thriller. And we're not giving anything away. But when that, you know, when the one wire is let loose in your heart, the procedure doesn't work. His inability to talk to you about it and to push you off on a PA I don't yeah. think that's an uncommon experience. No, I don't think it is either. And it is, especially as you're talking about the type of expertise you might bring into the room with the advocacy of your parents, that doctor knew I was writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I really kept thinking like, what is going through his head right now? Does he think he's sparing himself something by not going on the record. I'm not being in the process with me as a patient. 
And honestly, I just think he was really avoidant in all of my interactions with him. There's a real dismissiveness. You know, I think it's the problem of hyper-technical healthcare. You end up needing these minds that can operate at a certain technical level that then are often not getting trained or are naturally not predisposed to other ways of being. But you can't, so that in that procedure that you're mentioning, you know, we're trying to remove a broken wire that is plugged into my heart and then plugged into a defibrillator on the other side and it snaps off. And as that surgeon was trying to remove it through a different route, it it won't come out and he's tugging and tugging. I mean, to not understand what that moment means in the story of a patient's life and what that might mean in the experience of a body that is always present, whether or not it's under anesthesia. Mm. What I woke into in terms of what my life was about to become and what sort of shadows or shards my body was holding onto that I couldn't understand. And I don't just mean the literal shard of the wire, which is a shard, (laughs) but also the trauma of people sticking things up my veins and pulling on my cardiovascular system. We Mm -hmm. have really done a good job in this country as we've gotten more technical and as we've invented all these quote unquote miracle treatments, we've gotten really good at normalizing the fact that we do these things to bodies. And it's not that we shouldn't have modern technologies in healthcare, but we also can't forget that these are really wild things that we are doing Mm -hmm. to bodies that have not been done to bodies before the last, I don't know, the EKG wasn't invented until like 1900. And so this is all very new in our experience. And the necessity for our healthcare system to understand that care operates beyond just those technical maneuvers, that care requires patients waking up firmly planted in the story of their body and tended to in the traumatic aftermath and also accompanied through what that experience is. And and I understand that maybe the, the same person who is doing that work in my heart isn't the person who should do all of the tending for me. But, the, but our system doesn't have someone who steps in there, right? I don't have a mm-hmm. point person who's giving me empathy, who's just tending to that part of the wound, because that is equally a part of the wound for many, many, many of us. It's been really stunning, actually, since the book came out about two months ago. I receive letters every single day from people Mm. who have technologies abandoned in them, who have felt abandoned as patients, who have lost family members in healthcare situations that are really harrowing. And I just think we're not delving far enough into the human side of administering that quote-unquote care. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. 
If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. In that section where you're talking about Dr. Garrick and and sort of how he stepped back from ripping your heart, you know, how he could have have been, he'd had enough humility to yeah. abandon the lead. It, I love this part, if you don't mind if I read to you. Um, and you talk about sort of how you respected him for it, but then you write, and yet what I wanted was not an apology exactly, but the kind of I'm sorry that acknowledged what this would mean in my life. It was a form of accountability to stand with one's patients, no matter the outcome, to really see the outcome, which I knew changed the way one worked with other patients. It changed the way one weighed the use of medical technologies. Accountability requires vulnerability. It was therefore something hard, not necessarily fun. It required prioritizing showing up. This is a quote. A core social expectation of being sick is surrendering oneself to the care of a physician, writes socio-narratologist Arthur Frank. I understand this obligation of seeking medical care as a narrative surrender, but more is involved in patients' experiences than the medical story can tell. The loss of a life's map and destination are not medical symptoms. So beautiful and profound and true, you know, for so many people who walk into a doctor's office or a hospital, the map goes out the window, right? Like nothing's going to happen how you expect it to. And you experience this as a sort of young, hyperactive kid, essentially. Still a kid. And back to your question about why I avoided getting that EKG, you know, some part of me knew that if any family member had it, it was going to be me. And I understood that many of the things I loved about being alive would be up for grabs if I had long QT syndrome, as was true, right? I immediately Mm -hmm. had to quit working in outdoor education and try to figure out how to get not only the implanted cardiac defibrillator placed without insurance, which folks who read the book will see requires me actually moving to a different state where my younger sister's surgeon offers his help, but then also prioritizing seeking jobs that can offer me insurance. And I just want to pause on that because while I understand that all of us have to do things in order to take care of ourselves and take care of our families, the way that Americans are forced into shaping their their lives around access to insurance is really wild and bizarre. And to me, a total waste of human potential. You know, I... I have stopped reading the comments by now, but I did read some of the comments on my book when it uh, was first up on the various websites. And someone said, she's clearly smart enough to get a corporate job. I don't know why she didn't just get a job with insurance. And I sat there and I just kept thinking like, hold the book in your hands, read the book, understand Mm -hmm. why me writing this book is so important. And think about each person who has the potential to really be of service to everyone else, to the planet, to issues of justice. Like, What are the ways we end up closing down human possibility so that people can just access the basic social safety net that takes care of their bodies and takes care of their families? Right. And how insane is our system in which your healthcare, particularly in COVID, where so many of us are no longer employed, how strange to live in a system where that's how you have to access your 
ability to get care. And of course, like remembering too, how many people in this country just can't get access to those types of jobs. Right. Exactly. You mentioned that the New York Times editorial that at the time that that President Barack Obama had written, and then the statistics that that year, which is when you went to get your health, your heart surgery, 60% of bankruptcies would be attributable to medical bills. Like, yeah. that's crazy. That's crazy. That's it's not crazy. bad choices. That's that's a system that that's not supportive. That's right. That's a system that's not functioning. And that's there's a moment late in the book that I've been thinking a lot in the last few days as politics heat up in our country, in which I met a protest. This is in the spring of 2017. And so Trump has just been elected. And the Affordable Care Act looks like it's going to be repealed. Maybe it will be replaced with something. All of the options to anyone who knows about healthcare are not real options. They weren't based on policy or weren't based on any kind of reasonable policy that would have good healthcare outcomes. And so I met this protest and this man pulls over to shout back at the protesters. And what's so stunning is in the moments that follow, he shares that he has a pacemaker and a broken wire stuck in his heart. And I was like, oh my God, me too. And the only difference between the two of us was that we were at different ends of the subsidy structure, which means that Mm -hmm. I was able to get insurance on uh, the Obamacare healthcare marketplace where my monthly stipend from the government made it affordable. And he fell in a part of the income bracket where he didn't get a stipend and actually had had to pull money out of his IRA because of some unexpected expenses and really like got got kind of knocked around by the system. And it just was this moment of feeling so intensely about the healthcare issue and yet sitting on different sides of it politically even though we actually had the same need. And it it felt like such a loss, right? Because mm-hmm. there was a, a common humanity there that seems like it would be very easy to translate into policy. And somehow we just keep not getting there. No, absolutely. And then in even, you know, when you talk about him tapping into his IRA, I have great insurance. And even still, you know, my son had to get an x-ray that was supposedly in network and we just got a bill for $507 or something. So I just got insurance for the first time in a year and there was only one plan I could access where my out-of-pocket maximum would be under $10,000. And as someone who might end up needing heart surgery in any given year, yeah, that, that just has to happen. No, it's crazy. So I think you can have the best best possible insurance and even so you're still hit with all sorts of charges for healthy adults or healthy children. So, you know, it's interesting cuz the book theoretically sort of when I when I first picked it up, I was like, "Oh, this is an interest this is about the supply chain, this is about sort of the environmental cost of all of these electronics in our pockets, our phones." The, the defibrillator in your chest, like this is interesting. And and I, and I think a lot of people don't understand or, mm-hmm. or miss sort of the DNC, what was happening in the Congo and with two women and we're being, you know, the horrible atrocities, human atrocities that happen and the environmental devastation from mining. And then it, it obviously the book is about so much more you grappling with the what is the cost of a human life but then recognizing like the how massive these decisions are, right? Like there's no way to sort of feel good about any of it. 
Maybe you disagree, <laughs> but you know, you sort of give up at the end where you're like, I can't, I'm one, how can I, I want to live. And, you know, trying to, tr- you know, pouring through the, the CSR statements from minds, like trying to find anyone who's doing it in a way that isn't devastating or leaving behind communities torn apart. There is there a ver- there is no version, right? Did you think it was you were going to feel good that there would be some sort of silver lining, no pun intended? You know, I really hoped that I would come to some kind of peace or mm-hmm. a path that was better than other paths. <laughs> I think is sometimes all we can ask for. And I learned a couple of really important things. One is that extraction is the fundamental human activity. Yeah. So by being in villages in Madagascar and in Rwanda, I saw the way everybody in the course of their life is eating other plants and eating other animals and taking trees in order to make a house, taking trees for firewood. They would pay in a little gold from the river when someone had a medical bill. So it's not as though there's some group of people magically somewhere not drawing on resources. And I just finished Lauren Oak's excellent book, In Search of the Canary Tree, which is about climate change and the yellow cedar of Alaska. And she interviews someone who talks about the difference between using the word resource and then the word relationship. Mm -hmm. And to me the fundamental imbalance of our relationship to extraction is that we don't identify things as sacred. We don't have a sort of balanced relationship with, I I take, but I also give. We are not yes. a culture that completes that cycle. And we are not a culture that receives an object from whatever origins on whatever part of the planet and really like sees it and understands what it took to get it and then treats it as though it is this object that is so hard wrought and that is deserving of our care, is deserving of our care, especially in how we move it on to its next life. And so for me, the questions of the defibrillator, I knew that I would at some point know in my body whether or not my path was to continue having implanted cardiac defibrillators. And this book ends at the moment that I understood what the answer was for me. And it doesn't have to be the answer for anyone else. And I'm not saying that the technology isn't amazing in its ways, but it's a technology that comes with cost. And for me, the math doesn't work out. For someone Mm -hmm. else, it might. And I think we tend to really want to make black and white some of these issues that require our constant attention. We want to be able to come to a conclusion in some way so we can fall asleep to the issue again, because it's too distressing to keep thinking about it. And I think the bravery that's required of all of us is to keep touching that moment of like waking back up, right? Having having an object come into our lives and taking the moment to understand what it is, maybe before we even buy it, to understand what the end of its life might be. And so there's a, there's a part, there's a part of my takeaway from this whole journey that has to do with the personal relationship to the sacred and the communal relationship to the sacred. But then I think the policy level implication of that is really requiring of ourselves that 
if it's hard for us to make individual decisions in these realms, that's where policy is so essentially important. And it's true of healthcare, and it's also true of supply chain issues and the environment. And there's a, a pretty sizable movement towards the idea of the circular economy, which is when we decide what the end of an object's life will look like before we make it and actually engineer into it the ability to repair it or engineer into it the ability to dismantle it so that those parts can be used for something else or engineer it in such a way that it can degrade and blend back into the landscape. And right now, all of that's happening on a really ad hoc basis. And there's much more of a movement in the EU around regulations that companies would actually have to create these plans and be accountable to their products before they make them. And that's not something we've really seen the push for in the U.S. so far. And I think we need to. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So... Get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. One of my favorite books ever is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer and mm. this idea of, you know, reciprocity. And, and I think it goes to what you were saying at the very beginning. I mean, this is one line in the book that I think is so profound where you say, we speak of throwing things away, but away is a place. A made object exists until destroyed. And I think it goes to what you were saying about our aversion for looking at death. It's, mm-hmm. And it is, you know, we only want to think about the creation, the taking, mm-hmm. as you said, that those moments of acquisition. And COVID, for me at least, was, you know, the time out I needed, the sacred pause to sit here with all of the stuff that I've accumulated in my life and weigh each individual <laughs> item, you know, by its energy and I don't, none of us want to look at, it's, you know, the the toilet paper analogy and the hoarding of toilet paper was like the perfect cosmic joke because we don't, we're terrified of the shit that we create. We don't want to look, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to look at it where it goes. We don't know where our trash goes. We don't know where we go when we die. Like we cannot, we collectively just ostrich ourselves, our heads right into the sand because it's too difficult to think about the full cycle and process of life. And it can it holds for inanimate objects, too. Yes. We think that we can buy them and then they'll just go away. Just but they, magically. Magically. But that there is a cost. And, you know, I, the reason I love Braiding Sweetgrass, too, for so many reasons, and anyone who's listening who hasn't read it, it is so beautiful. But there is a version of the, the reciprocity of, like, the earth needs us to mm-hmm. it. it's mm-hmm. we're not supposed to not engage with the planet that's right we just need to do it in a responsible way yeah. and we've lost that the initial weeks of lockdown were so fascinating because as you were talking about the sacred pause we also had that communal understanding that when you all stop moving around the skies clear up Mm. (laughs) these, you know, different reports from all over the world about how different things looked with people on lockdown and not flying. And the way, yes, we all want to set out on really beautiful, exciting trips. And there's no moment of reckoning with what that costs. 
And we are seeing some of the cost in terms of climate change, climate disasters. But I think for us to have this moment of pause, part of why pauses are so scary for people is that if we pause, we might really see things. And if we really see things, we might have to grieve. And if mm. we grieve, we we can't always keep living the way that we're living. You know, to really pay attention to resource use yeah. is to be changed by the objects that move through our life. And sometimes it sort of signals to us that we can't have everything we want or have it the way we used to have it, have it the way we wanted it. I, I think there's a way that those initial weeks of lockdown, and I unfortunately think we've lost some of that perspective now because we're sort of numbed to what it is now. But those initial weeks of lockdown really forced us to look at some of the ways our movement on the planet creates the conditions of the planet. And we saw saw ourselves for a moment. I think it has persisted for many people who did not think that they could exist or function in this way and are now sort of like, oh, well, like, yeah, maybe I maybe travel isn't as essential for me. Maybe mm. I was traveling in part to escape. And this prioritization of like, oh, I have to have, go and have all these adventures when for me, and I was able to go a couple times during COVID, just going home to Montana, like you, you know, just to be in nature was what my nervous system desperately needed. And I don't need to go to Tokyo. I'd like to go to Tokyo someday, mm. but it doesn't have to happen. You know, I think too, though, that being able to look at the end, I mean, you talk a lot throughout of sort of moments when you wanted to die, moments when you sort of held that idea in your palm to see if you could reconcile it. And then I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you arrived at a place where you were not welcoming death, but okay okay with death. Is that fair? I mean, I know you yes. don't want to die, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a hard thing to talk about, and I'm glad you're asking there's really a whole another book after the book because the writing of these scenes forced me to reckon with every one of them and really changed me. And there was a moment in the summer of 2019 where I was preparing to turn in the first draft to my editor. It, the book was very, very late. And I had spent a lot of my winter up on this mesa actually screaming in order to get some of the scenes to move through me. Mm. trying to let my body express whatever it was that had been not fully expressed and locked in my body. And I was having a lot of really insane trauma symptoms. And so in the summer of 2019, there was this moment before I turned the book in where I had to realize that the book had been my will to live for a really long time. That there mm. was a way that my experiences in the healthcare system and the sense of powerlessness over what would happen in my heart and what would happen in my body, this, this sense of death always being with me. I had gotten through it by focusing on the, the idea of this book and the fact of pushing it through. And then at some point, I was going to have to turn the book in. <laughs> and so as I look as a character on the page at the end of Lightning Flowers, there's a way you've seen me move through a lot of dis different resistances to death and mm -hmm. reckonings with it. And there's a way that I've come to understand it 
that it's not going away, that there's nothing I can do to make it go away, and that there are choices I can make about how I live in relationship to it, and that we are making communal choices as systems around how we support people in living with it or or ignore it and kind of leave them to fend for themselves. And in the summer of 2019, I really had to ask myself, what does it mean to live with the knowledge that death is not going anywhere and to live with the knowledge that you have this thing in your heart that could turn into a problem at any moment, which, you know, by the way, is no different from all of us understanding that now we can go to the post office and get a virus that might kill us. You know, it's like these things have always been true. We always could have gotten in the car accident. We always could have had the mutated cells turn into a crazy cancer. Those of us who've lived through illness know this truth. And actually, some of us were sitting back at the beginning of COVID like, oh, welcome, everyone. (laughs) Like, welcome to my land. We've been living here. And yet it's a brutal, brutal thing to actually live with. And how do you then transition into believing that life is still worth investing in, believing that life Mm -hmm. is not some kind of treadmill without meaning. And it takes a lot of bravery. And that's really what is at stake when we're talking about living in a culture with resistance to death. We're talking about deciding it's easier to not think about the fact that death exists and therefore not having to be brave enough to figure out how to live despite the fact of it. And I can tell you that for me, it has really been a long and hard process and and in no small part because not everyone in my life could inhabit that space with me of like, Mm. no, no, death is here and death is real. And, and I will always be I will always have a a foot in that world in some way. But I also have really been able to deepen my relationship to other beings on this planet. I have a really beautiful relationship with the trees on my property. I'm now Mm. tending chickens. I'm trying to stay really in touch with cycles of sunset and sunrise and what the moon is doing and grounding myself in the things that are really beautiful that... I think are the balm for that much bravery being required. And there's a kind of like that awareness of death that I think happens too. If you think about old mythology and the the archetype of the crone who has kind of a chuckle (laughs) that's available when she's thinking about things that are dark or hard. I do think we are seeking as a culture to connect with our elders, to find out who our elders even are that can lead us through this moment where we can't pretend that death is not present anymore. We're in sort of a communal initiation around that. So that's part of why it was so strange for my book to come out in this year, because I wondered, is this book just going to be too dark for people? And instead, you know, months before it came out, suddenly we all are living with this reality in a really different way. And I hope in that sense that it is a balm for people. Thank you for your honesty too about sort of the relationships in your life. And I know you law, you know, your first love, essentially, mm-hmm. who knows if your relationship would have, have ultimately erupted because you guys were young, who knows, right? But that he couldn't be there. It takes a yeah. lot takes to a lot. to look someone in the eyes while they're sick or dying or whatever it may be, or the possibility looms that you could love someone and lose them. Obviously, your your parents were there and your family and your friends, but does that still shape the tenor of the relationships in your life? Mm, 
Well, I have been single since then. Let's <laughs> <laughs> find you. Yes. <laughs> you know, because there's no, I think having lived through what I've lived through, there's no part of me that's able to accept not being seen in that way. Especially, mm. you know, so much of the book is about being seen or not being seen. Both these villages in Madagascar who corporations are trying to make plans for, but they're not actually like really seeing the impacts of the actions or they're not able to uh, amend the plan in such a way that reflects the seeing, right? And there's there are all of these doctors who don't really see me. They're sort of kind of tapping in with a diagnosis or or nurses are doing things to my body and they're not seeing me. And so I have a very low threshold in my relationships for people not being able to hold that space with me. And the beautiful thing about my life throughout the writing of this book and to the current moment is that there's a sort of vastness in me now for other people's hard experiences. And I'm not I'm not here to say that somehow what I have lived is harder than what other people have lived. And so to really invite invite that from people, they may not have had a space where they were able to be fully in the truth of their own experience. And to be in relationship with me is for those parts to be okay, for those parts Mm -hmm. to be forms of wisdom. You know, my teacher Eve talks a lot about how we turn experience into wisdom through reflection. And so having having those conversations with each other that are honest, that are raw. You know, I I basically refused with my relationships with my parents and my younger sister to do the shallow version of this illness. And mm. I know it has not always been comfortable for them. My younger sister, especially readers will see, she deals with having long QT syndrome and her ICD and some of her technology issues very differently than I have. And so it was very hard for her to fact check the book. And yet I do think ultimately it becomes an invitation to them into the deeper layers of the experience that ultimately does pay off. And I have extraordinary relationships with them and extraordinary relationships with some of the people in my life who have also been through things that are adjacent to to these issues. And it's, it requires a lot of courage, obviously, to, to hold someone's hand, yet at the same time, how can we not? And I think that that's, you know, yeah. a, di- a disavowal of ourselves that is not uncommon, you know? I'm, yeah, we all feel well, like we've let people down. Right. Well, one of the things that Arthur Frank says, the socio-narratologist who you quoted earlier, that was so important to me was basically that when we are with people whose lives are in chaos, we have to understand that that can happen to us. There's Mm -hmm. a sort of belief in the order of things, and especially in our society, a belief that we are in control, that logic, that technology, that reason, that if we just think about it hard enough, if we just do enough studies, we can nail down all these different factors and make a decision that is airtight. And the truth is, to be alive is to be subject to things that we are not in control of. And so when you have someone in your life who is experiencing illness, especially as a young person, it can be so impossible to bear witness to that because then you are confronted with your own lack of control. And Mm -hmm. there's a real dynamic in the book around me blaming myself 
particularly in that first year in which I pass out in a parking lot and then I have the ICD placed. And then ultimately, I almost die of sepsis. And there's a line, I think, at the beginning of chapter nine that talks about, or chapter 10, this idea that being sick is a choice that I made that I could unmake now, like, which Mm -hmm. is not true, right? But as a young person, you've been told that you're in control of things, that you shouldn't be sick. Everyone around wants you to not be sick. So could you just not be sick? (laughs) (laughs) And it's really humbling. I had such a process myself to come into relationship with my body and be like, I'm not choosing this. Yeah. Not to say that there's nothing that we can do, you know, around how we mentally approach a situation or how we take care of our bodies in that context. But I think especially for that young partner, he was a few years older than me. But part of what I loved about him was the way he made me laugh. He was really playful. He was a little childish. And that was really pleasurable until it wasn't, until I really needed him to do the types of relationship things that a lot of people don't do until they're in their 50s and 60s. And he did a pretty good job for quite a while. You know, that year that I was 24 was just a really long year and it kept getting worse and worse. And one of the things that it was hard to pin down in the book that I think a lot about, I thought a lot about it in terms of like trying to be as fair to him as possible, was my own lack of understanding of what I was going through because I was facing death and because I didn't want to be facing death. Mm -hmm. And because no one else in my life was talking about death, there were no referrals to a mental health care practitioner. There was no connection with like a death doula who works with young people facing illness. There were just no resources being offered in my direction in that way. And so I it took a really long time after that year passed for me to really understand what I was going through internally to adjust to the reality of the situation. And so to be in relationship with me at that time couldn't have been easy because there's so much going on for me. And he wouldn't necessarily have known what those things were. And also, I think, was just terrified. I mean, not only of losing his own health, there was actually a really interesting moment in the winter of 2010 between my surgery and my going septic where he had some palpitations. And we went to the hospital because he was so freaked out. And he told me as he was sitting there that he just was so worried that this was going to mean that he needed a defibrillator and that he was going to have to stop rock climbing. And you could just see that the chain of events and the way they had blown my life apart had very much landed with him. And to see that they could have been his his reality too was just too terrifying to deal with. And so I think there was a breaking point where I really came to understand that I would die young. It's it's very wild to me that I'm sitting here at 35 years old, not dead, and with the book actually out. And when people ask me how I wrote the book, a big part of the answer is just that like I thought I might die before I wrote it, and that keeps you moving. But he, yeah, I I had that breaking point, and I think he had that breaking point too. And the only way he could leave the situation was to leave me. Yeah. Clearly, you, m- for most of your life, have gotten so much pleasure out of your body, strength out of your body, your physical, or, and certainly were like a deeply physical person. And then to feel like, I don't look sick, and mm. I don't feel sick. How am I sick when this is yeah. sort of the provenance of, you know, 
80-year-olds with six chronic diseases who, of course, are sort of (laughs) failing has to have been such a strange experience for him as well. You know, I think that's true for so so many of us. It's sort of like, well, you don't, mm-hmm. you know, I have this attitude towards my husband all the time who was, has, does not have any dangerous conditions, certainly, where I'm like, you don't look sick. Like, I have no sympathy for you. And mm-hmm. that sniffle. But what a strange, also just the dissonant experience of dissonance to be like, I don't understand how this is could take your life away, yet you have no symptoms. Yes, right. Both of those. Both of those. And wanting to believe that it will be okay and also being so terrified that it's not okay. There was actually a really interesting moment right before my grandfather's death where I was helping him into a car and he was moving really slowly and clearly in pain. He had late stage bone cancer. And Mm -hmm. as he settled in, he said, you have no idea. And I just found myself flashing to this moment near the end of my sepsis experience where I was trying to walk to the corner, which was one house. (laughs) It was one house and I was so weak and I had fought so much in the hospital to even be able to walk to the bathroom, right? I, my belly was all swollen with inflamed organs. There just were all those moments that I really felt the frailty of being young and also really being quite capable mm-hmm. of dying. And my, when my grandpa said, you have no idea, I just thought, yes, I do. Yes, I mm. do. And I don't know what it's like to, to have lived a long life and to have been in your body and loved being in your body and to lose it and to know it's never coming back. But I can tell you that there were many, many times in the last 10 years that I thought I was not getting things back. And I have just been floored with my health privilege. I mean, I can tell you, I ran eight miles the other day for the first time since my 2016 Mm. surgeries. And there was a period after those surgeries that are described in the book where I could barely walk. My Mm. trauma symptoms were so crazy that my feet weren't working, my hip wasn't working. And this idea that I get to experience some of these forms of pleasure again, not knowing when they might go away, not knowing when the next heart surgery will be to deal with this shard in my heart. It really creates, I think, exactly that container we were talking about for living despite the fact of death. It's that sweetness. Eight miles, running eight miles does not sound pleasurable to me, but more power to you. I don't think I've ever run eight miles. I can imagine for you. If you saw these mesas, it's so beautiful. Yeah, you flow like water up and down these trails. Oh, I would flow like an elephant up and down those trails. It's about that elegant. I just briskly hike behind you. I know we're out of time, but I just wanted to read one more, the the end of the book, which I, again, doesn't give anything away, I promise, but it's so beautiful. And I think it's such an incredible sort of summation. So you write, for these questions, there are no final answers. There are only attempts, next steps based on the hard work that lies before us. I see many steps to prioritize access to healthcare so that one's life is affected only by the disease itself rather than the process of seeking care to actively train physicians away from their own egos and toward tenderness, understanding what it means to step into the story of a life, to begin the hard cultural work of facing the death that is already around us, to ask that health systems recognize rare conditions and send patients to those most qualified to treat them, 
to require that the manufacturers of products no longer proceed as though their products will simply disappear, that the next life of any product must honor where it came from and what it took to make it, to treat minerals and materials as the sacred substances they are. In the same way, we are not allowed to be hysterical within a hyper-rational healthcare system. We have not been allowed to grieve our mountains, to recognize that we are rummaging inside a body, to see those veins for how they lace into the earth. Might we walk with different humility if we remembered ourselves this way, brief, made of mineral, and born of earth, becoming it again. Oh, that makes me cry. So beautiful. (laughs) Well, thank you for everything. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Catherine Standifer. For more from Catherine, please check out her memoir, Lightning Flowers, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life. I'm thrilled that my last episode with the Goop podcast could revolve around such a remarkable life story. Thanks again for your attention and communion. I'll see you on the flip side. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.